This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Thank you, Bill. I am so grateful to be back here at Cornerstone, especially having my wife with me, the fair Julie. Um, It's been really a pure joy to be with your pastors and uh, the leaders and wives of your church. This is going to sound like a special or a guest speaker type thing to say, but I know your church and I've known your church from a long time. Um, It's a special church uh, and God's grace is evident throughout this church, but nowhere is that grace more evident than in the leaders and their wives that the Lord has given this church. It's, it's just, maybe you take it for granted, I don't know, but it's, it's, it is uncommon. It is not the norm uh, to have so many godly, gifted, and mature leaders that are pouring their lives out uh, to serve this church in so many ways. And, and to be among them, it told me a lot about you as a church. Um, to be among them and to be with you this morning, it's just quite the privilege. Um, in a week, I am going to be with the Sovereign Grace leadership team that I have the privilege of serving in. We're going to be together for a week, praying and planning. And uh, I, I told the leaders this weekend, Sovereign Grace, our, the, the leadership of Sovereign Grace, we <laughs> We're aware of this church, and we are thankful for this church. And I just, on behalf of them and, and all of our churches that, we're, that are in our family, I just want to say thank you. Cornerstone has been a model and an example within Sovereign Grace for decades now. Um, when I think about the example of servanthood that you have here, the example of outreach that you have, uh, what you do on the campus through VFC and just hearing Jake talk about the different nations that you're going to, uh, we are so much richer because of this church. And I just want to say thank you. It's just a great honor to be, to be with you this morning. So let's turn in our Bibles, if you would, to Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're going to be looking this morning in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses... Four to seven. Philippians four, verses four to seven. <clears throat> what we're about to read, as you know, but we want to be careful to remember, this is the word of God. Philippians four, verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, we are in a new year now, and even though we are, at least in my house, we have not 
yet re-entered our normal routines yet. I don't know about you. We are still on our holiday diet, trying to slowly wean ourselves from the levels of sugar we've been intaking. Uh, our boys aren't in school yet, so we're staying up entirely too late. Uh, I have two sons, 17 and 14. I am absolutely exhausted and can't wait for them to be back in school. Um, but in so many ways, it still feels like Christmas to us. Uh, I, I was thinking about that this morning in regard to this text. If I were to ask you, what's your favorite Christmas text? I doubt the text that we just read would appear on your list. It's not really a Christmas text, but it's consistent with so much of what we have been hearing over the past month or so. Just look at the words in it. Look down at verse 4. Rejoice. Again, rejoice. Verse 6, thanksgiving. Verse 7, peace. It's got this sort of Christmas feel to it. Um, and, and that's what we hear all around us at this time of year in the past month, isn't it? Joy to the world, peace on earth, throughout our culture even, in shopping malls and, and radio stations and television commercials. There, there's this expectation that at this time of the year, we're to be joyful. All of a sudden, our, our you know, rat race culture there's this expectation that peace and goodwill should suddenly arise in our hearts and characterize our interactions with others, all because it's Christmas, or for more secular types, the holidays. Well, the text that we're going to look at this morning, it actually has similar expectations. We are exhorted here to joy and to peace and to thanksgiving. But, but not because of a holiday, not because of a cultural tradition, not because of a sentimental impulse. This text issues real commands. It expects something from us. But unlike our culture, these commands don't burden us with some nebulous sense of obligation. These commands are rooted in something. They, they are premised upon something. Now, we're just dropping into Philippians this morning, but if you're familiar with this book, as you read this book, you'll notice something repeatedly. Over and over throughout these four chapters of this short letter are references to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's one reason I love this book. The gospel is laced through its pages. Um, it, it's central in every chapter of the book, beginning at chapter 1, uh, verse 5, all the way up to the previous verse of our text, chapter 4, verse 3. And so when we, when we come to this text, Paul is making, he's assuming all that gospel talk, all those gospel references. All that gospel celebration, he's assuming that, and now what he's doing as he gets to the end of the letter and making these commands, and you, you know this when you read Pauline letters, you kind of get to the end and he just starts slapping you with, with all this stuff you're supposed to do. Well, don't, don't miss the connection between the theology that comes earlier. This morning in this text, Paul is making a connection between the gospel and the state of our hearts. Nearing the end of the letter, having covered some massive theological terrain, Paul now gets very specific. He gets very personal. Here he makes no complex theological arguments 
like he did in chapter 2 or chapter 3. There's no abstract truths here. This text deals with how you feel. This text deals with what's going on in your heart. There's no superficial obedience in view in these verses. This text makes a claim on who we are at our core. What's going on on the inside? And if we were to sum up that claim, and God's Word always makes a claim on us, if we were to sum up that claim, I think we could say simply this. It's a simple message that this text gives us. I'd put it this way. The Christian's soul is meant to display the power of the gospel. The Christian soul is meant to put on display the gospel's power. Our inner life, what is going on in your head this morning, what is going on in your heart this morning, is intended by God, my friends, to be a showcase of the gospel's power. Our, you, you've been saved. We've been rejoicing in our salvation. We know our destiny is secure. But now Paul is pressing in and saying, okay, beyond that, our feelings now and our thoughts and our decisions, that those are all now to be governed by the reality of the gospel. You see, the gospel isn't something that we merely sing about or profess. It's not to be relegated to our Sunday meeting or our small group. The gospel is meant to affect us at the deepest level. What we really think, how we honestly feel, the authentic posture of our inner life. That's what this text addresses. And far from being a Christmas verse, a seasonal focus in our lives, this text is intended for all of life. Whether you're here this morning and you're, you, you've recently faced tragedy, or whether you're here this morning and, and life has just never felt so smooth. It, it's, it's packed with categorical, comprehensive statements. Look at it. Look at the adverbs here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Verse 5, reasonableness be known to everyone. Verse 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer. Peace of God will surpass us all understanding. Do you hear? It's just, he's just like throwing his arms open in everything and always and anything. And this is not nuanced counsel. Paul, Paul is not allowing for exceptions here. He, he, he's not sympathetic to sort of special circumstances that exempt you from the commands of this text. This is bold counsel that is directly relevant to all Christians at all times in every circumstance. In fact, its most relevant application is in our unremarkable moments when our circumstances aren't blaring at us. The daily moments, the, the, the mundane moments, the moments like I'm having coming off of Christmas, the, the get out of bed and make it to the Keurig moments. The get the kids ready for school moments. The man, I've got a research paper due Friday moments. The I've got 150 emails waiting for me moments. The now why is the baby crying moments. That, 
This is God's will for all of life in all of our mundane moments. The Christian soul, the soul touched by the gospel is meant to display the power of the gospel. Now, so let's look at how Paul presses in on us here. This text shows us three marks of the Christian soul, three intended effects of the gospel upon the inner life of the believer, okay? Three effects of the gospel upon our hearts and our minds, upon our thoughts and our emotions, upon our thinking and our feeling. We could ask this, what happens when the gospel takes root in the heart of the Christian? All right? Let's see what happens when the gospel takes root. Mark number one, the first mark of the Christian soul. The Christian soul is to be joyful. The Christian soul is to be joyful. Verse 4 Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, this is not the first time we've seen the word joy in this letter. In fact, if you count, it's the 13th time in four chapters that we've seen the word joy or the verb rejoicing. This letter is punctuated by the theme of joy. In fact, we see the exact same command to rejoice in chapter 3, verse 1, the first time Paul starts wrapping up. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Aren't you glad the Lord didn't let him stop writing? He keeps on, and so now he's going to wrap up again in chapter 4. He says it again, rejoice in the Lord. This time it's always. And just in case you didn't miss it, he repeats himself again, I say. You going to say it again, Paul? Do you have something to say? Yeah, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'm going to say rejoice. What do you, th- you know what this means? We're to rejoice. Bill told me that that's what the Greek meant, and, and I believe him. Let's, let's look more carefully, though. It, it, it's, this isn't giddy, superficial, slap you on the back. Paul just has a big heart. He's gregarious and garrulous, and he's just that kind of guy. No, it's a particular kind of rejoicing, he says here. There's a ground and a reason to rejoice. Verse 4, we are to Rejoice in the Lord. An incredibly important prepositional phrase. This is what distinguishes Christian joy from temporal joy, from earthly joy, from holiday joy. Earthly joy, of course, is what we typically mean by, you know, happiness. It's derived externally. It's dependent upon our circumstances. It's really, happiness really is just a reflection of how favorable our personal situation is at the moment. uh, Happiness is kind of a a psychological mirror of our circumstances. When, When circumstances are favorable, when things line up to our advantage, when we look good or we prosper, or we're comfortable, or we're free free from pain, or free from opposition, or free from hassle, then we're happy. When things go wrong, and hopes are dashed, when we perceive disadvantage, when we're criticized, or opposed, we, we encounter pain, or inconvenience, we're decidedly unhappy. 
We know this experience up and down every day, don't we? Christian joy, gospel joy, is totally different. It's not dependent upon external circumstances. It's grounded on something solid and durable and unshifting. It's grounded upon this, a relationship with God secured and protected by the gospel. Think about that for a moment. The most fundamental need that we have, the only true need that we have, has been met and met forever through God's mercy and grace in the gospel. Think about what the gospel tells us and secures for us. Think about what is yours in your hands, in your heart, because of the gospel. Complete forgiveness of sin, past present, and future. Is that good news? (laughs) Utterly righteous before God and accepted forevermore before God. No shame. A new heart with new passions and new desires and and, and new allegiances. God's, God's loving omnipotent hand covering us, governing and guiding every circumstance for our good, sustaining grace for trials, comforting grace in tragedy, a sure and certain future of life forever in the presence of God with no more tears and no more sin and no more tragedy and no more regret and no more disappointments, only this is what's coming. 24-7 fullness of joy uninterrupted in the unshielded presence of God forever. Think about it. If If all that occupies your mind and informs your perspective and governs your interpretation of circumstances, what can we do but rejoice? Those are our sanest moments, aren't they? And there's more. Uh, As Christians, the reason for our rejoicing never changes. That's why Paul can say, you might say, Paul, how can you tell me what to feel? Who are you to tell? My feelings are mine. Okay, you can tell me what to believe, but don't tell me what to feel. No, he tells us what to feel, and he says do this always. How can he do such a thing? Because the reason for our rejoicing never changes. That's why he can say rejoice always, meaning regardless of circumstances. The only way we can obey that command is if the ground of our joy is the gospel. That's the only way you can obey that command. Because God is always good, and the gospel is always true, and Christ will always be faithful to us, then there's always reason to rejoice. Now, we don't want to misunderstand this. This doesn't mean you'll never have a sad thought. It doesn't mean you won't have ever experience a downcast heart. It it certainly doesn't mean the Christian will never experience pain. It doesn't mean that we believers are untouched by tragedy or brokenness 
in the world or in our lives. It doesn't mean we won't have regrets. It doesn't mean we won't grieve. It doesn't mean we won't wrestle with heartache. But it does mean that the Christian is not captive to such things. The Christian has a joy that transcends such things and by the Holy Spirit's presence even pervades such things. We've tasted of a, of a love beyond this world that transforms everything in this world. The Christian lays hold of Christ and all he has done to cancel guilt and remove despair and bring new life. And so when clouds come, and clouds will come, the Christian reflects upon Christ's goodness and, and beauty and mercy and faithfulness until the fog of, of sin and despair dissip dissipates. And he does that knowing that while our grip on him, as we sang, is sometimes weak, his grip on us is firm and fast. And my joy is not dependent on my grip. My joy is dependent on his omnipotent grip. Tim Keller, pastor in New York, says this about rejoicing. I love this. Rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested and until it relaxes its grip on anything else it needs. Isn't that good? Rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested and until it relaxes its grip on anything else it needs. So much more we could say about joy, but let me do this. I, I want to do one thing. I want to prepare you for the week ahead. I want to prepare, maybe prepare you for this afternoon. Something is going, and I'm, I'm not speaking prophetically. This is just life. Uh, <laughs> I'm getting old, and I know this is true. Uh, but something is going to happen this week, maybe today, that is going to reveal the true ground of your joy at that moment. Um, inevitably, there will be tests of adversity uh, from simple hassle, irritants, to severe, to differing degrees for all of us. And, and in those moments, if you're paying attention, you'll discover something about yourself. Often you'll discover that the joy you just lost is, is not actually joy, but what you just lost was a happiness that was superficially derived. A, 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 a cheerfulness based on pleasant circumstances. But here's, I don't know all that God is doing in your heartache. I don't know. But I know one thing He's doing. One thing he's doing is that in his mercy, as a loving father, he ordains and allows such tests to help us transition from superficial happiness to authentic joy in him. 
So has, has your joy this morning shifted from your relationship to Christ to your circumstances? From Christ to your desires? From Christ to your reputation? From Christ to your comfort? From Christ to external security? From, from Christ to another relationship? This, this very short, simple, repetitive verse is a gift to help us shift the ground, shift the ground of our joy, to reestablish our joy on a person, Jesus Christ, and what He has done for us and who He will be for us every day. There's a purpose to your adversity. If you're wondering, there's a purpose. Again, I'm not sure all that God is doing, but one thing He's doing is helping you. He's bidding you, come. Take your stand on solid ground. Place your joy back on the gospel. He's, God is kindly removing superficial alternatives to true and deep and lasting joy that's only found in that's what he's doing. Because the gospel is true, because our Savior is faithful, because our destiny is secure, joy is possible in the face of any trial. Amen? That's the first mark of the soul transformed by the gospel. It's joy. The second mark of the Christian soul. Mark number two, the Christian soul is gentle. The Christian soul is gentle. Verse five, let your reasonableness be known to all, to everyone. Now, like any church, the Philippians clearly had relational challenges. We actually see that specifically uh, in verse uh, 2 uh, and 3, just before our text. How, how would you like your name to be canonized because of a conflict with your spouse or a friend? Just called out in the Bible. It's just amazing. Um, and so Paul is putting his finger on that here. The word reasonableness that we see in the text I'm reading, the ESV, is translated um, in the NIV, gentleness. And if you were to go and check other translations, you'd find different words. You'd find forbearance, tolerance, moderation, magnanimity, softness. Now, now, when you see so many different translations, you know that the translators are wrestling with a slippery word. The basic idea behind this word could be summed up by this phrase, gentle forbearance, or maybe kind self-effacement. It's, it's the, actually the opposite let me give you an opposite. It's the opposite of a person who always demands what's coming to him. He must have justice. He wants what's coming to him, and he's just ready to, he's just ready to punch someone in the nose who gets in his way. He'll do anything to get his due. He's unyielding. He's exacting. He always has to win. He demands absolute justice. And if someone does him wrong, well, they're going to pay. The gentle person is the opposite. The gentle person is the kind of person who bears up under wrong. He's not contentious. 
He's not exacting. He doesn't get angry and bitter when someone wrongs him. He doesn't shout out the window when someone cuts him off in traffic. He absorbs, this is, this is gentleness, you absorb wrong, you absorb unkindness, you absorb injustice, you absorb unfairness, you absorb cruelty with grace and poise. And you come back with love. It's really the Pauline version of what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 23, where he describes Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's gentleness. It's, it's not a personality trait. Uh, it's, it's not just something that, you know, kind of some people have naturally. It, it's a spirit-born, it's a spirit-born peaceableness that rests in God's will when dealing with others. This is not the air that I'm accustomed to breathing. This, this is the air of heaven, not the air of this world. I'm not looking, if you want to know me, I'm not looking to absorb wrong. Come on, do me wrong. I love it. No, I'm, I'm not looking to do good when others do me bad. My desire is to prevail, not to yield. My desire to set things right, not to accept wrong. I, you know, I'm just, don't get in my way, apart from the gospel. And Paul's words are striking. Let, look at what he says. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. Get a reputation for gentleness. Let everybody know about it. When people play word association with your name, when they say, okay, what's the first word, when they, what, what's the first word that comes to your mind when they say, Bill, they're supposed to say, gentle. So that prompts a question, doesn't it? What is it that comes to people's mind when, when your name in that game. What, what do you like to be known for? Is it, because Paul is saying, be known for this. Do, do you like to be known for this, or do you like to be known for how gifted you are? What do you love people thinking about you? The competency in your job? Do you love that? Maybe competency at home, you know? Yes, I'm the omnicompetent mom. Is it your intelligence? Is it, is it being the guy with the joke? Is it your consistency in your devotions? Is it your evangelistic diligence? You see, in our sin, we can twist even godly things into vehicles for our own pride. Gentleness is different, though. Paul, Paul sets us free to get a reputation. You almost can't mess this one up. Because to get a reputation for this means, by definition, not getting your own way and being gracious and kind about it. So they're, they're, don't worry about being proud about your gentleness because they're, they're, they're in opposition. To, to be gentle means not elbowing your way to prominence. It means not getting your way. It means not getting justice. It means not being placed first. So get a reputation for just loving to absorb injustice and coming back with love. But isn't, you see how the gospel is tied to that? That is precisely the effect of the gospel, is it not? 
We Think about it. We are people who deserved only one thing, judgment from a holy God. But in, that's what we deserve. But instead, we got the opposite, forgiveness. In, in, instead of hell, we got opened-armed welcome from the Jesus that we cursed with our lives. We got new life. We, we got everything worth having for an eternity with Jesus. When we grasp that, then our impulse to grasp other things, to get our due, to get justice, to get even, to be vindicated, when we, when we realize that we got what we didn't deserve, then that impulse is weakened. And we become gentle. Gentleness in the heart of a Christian puts the gospel on display. Do you see? It's part of the calculus of the gospel. Well, that's number two. Let's look at our third one. The third effect of the gospel on our inner life, the third mark of the Christian soul. It's joyful, it's gentle, and thirdly, the Christian soul is peaceful. Christian soul is peaceful. This is a bit different from the first two. Here the command is not be peaceful, but peace is the result of doing something else. Many of us could quote verses 6 and 7, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, but let's, let that, let's not let that familiar verse be overly familiar to us. Two parallel commands there, right, that basically describe one thing. Don't be anxious. Let your request known to God. Um, those two commands basically describe one thing, dependence upon God. So at its heart, I was saying this to Bill the other day or this weekend, at its heart, this is not so much a prayer text, although it's a wonderful text on prayer, but it's really more a dependence text, which is what lies at the heart of prayer. We are to, so what are the two commands? Renounce all anxiety and cast everything upon God. Worry about nothing and pray about everything. Now, to do those two things is to allow the gospel to exert its intended effect upon the soul. Now, you know, as soon as you read that first command, you know it sounds foreign. In our Western psychologized culture, few commands sound more foreign than be anxious for nothing. I mean, we make careers out of being anxious. Entire industries depend upon anxiety. Local news, weather forecast, pharmaceutical industry, it all depends upon you being anxious, right? In fact, if you're not anxious, something's wrong with you. You're in denial. You're in denial if you're not anxious. And, and you know what? That almost makes sense if we are alone and exposed and vulnerable in a hostile world. If you are, go for it. Be anxious. But, but the Bible tells us we're not. The Bible tells us a story that should remove our anxiety. It gives us a worldview in which anxiety doesn't make sense. And so our anxiety tells us something about ourselves. It's a great indicator of our true belief 
at a given moment. We're believing something in our anxiety. The problem is we're believing wrong things, especially wrong things about God. We can usually boil this down to a few key categories. Think about this. Perhaps we're believing you're anxious. Perhaps we're believing, okay, one, God is not faithful. He won't come through. He can't be depended upon. I'm outside, in this circumstance, I'm outside of his care. He, he, he's, he won't be faithful. You may be believing that. Or maybe you're believing this God is not wise. This plan for my life, it's so inefficient. I would not do it this way. Lord, this makes no sense to me. God is, God is not wise. So maybe He's not faithful. Maybe He's not wise. Maybe you're believing this. God is not powerful. <laughs> this situation, I, I know God means well, but this, this course load, this work situation, this combination of personalities and four children, God, you, you mean well, but I, I know this, is, this transcends your power. Maybe he's not faithful, maybe he's not wise, maybe he's not, pow- maybe he's not powerful. Or, perhaps we're believing God is not loving. And maybe you've gone there. If God really loved me, this, w- this would not be happening. God loved my, my sister. This would, <laughs> this would not be happening. That's what our anxiety is saying about God. We're making statements when we're anxious. Pronouncements about the character of our Creator. We're having what what, what John Owen called hard thoughts of God. What's the solution? Well, the solution is perhaps the most important counseling advice in the whole Bible. Pray. It's the best counseling advice in the world. Pray. In prayer, what happens? In prayer, we renounce those lies. In prayer, we stop looking for alternative saviors. In prayer, we entrust Him with our lives and our circumstances and our fears and our regrets. You see, prayer makes the opposite statement of anxiety. Prayer says, Father, your gospel tells me everything I need to know about you. Prayer says, Savior, I believe, and you have proven on the cross that everything you do is informed by unsearchable wisdom. Everything you do is motivated motivated by infinite love. Everything you do is propelled forward by omnipotent power. See, when the gospel is functioning for us, circumstances don't just sort of wash over us. And we're at their mercy. No, we face them down with truth. The truth of God's Word. The truth of God's character. And the Gospel is the Bible's great show and tell of God's character and purposes. We we never, brothers and sisters, think of the Gospel. We never, ever have to wonder again who God is and what He's doing. It's all good. Never wonder again. 
There's a little phrase in this text that often gets overlooked, but for me, it's the key to unlocking the entire thing. Look at this little phrase. You might have thought, well, Jeff, you overlooked this. This little phrase at the end of verse 5, the Lord is at hand. Maybe more literally, the Lord is near. And you notice how in my translation, I think they get it just right, there's a semicolon after it, so it connects verse 6 to it. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious. That little phrase is packed with significance, and it's the key to applying verses 6 and 7. I want you to look at one other text, if you would. Keep your finger here. Turn very quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 4. It's the fourth I'm sorry, the fifth book in your Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Here, while you're turning, the nation, here's Moses with the nation of Israel poised into the promised land. The first generation had, had forfeited the inheritance, and now this is a new generation that Moses is preparing. The covenant between Israel and God is being reaffirmed. This new generation is being prepared to enter the promised land, to gain their inheritance with God. Moses reviews a history, 38 years of wandering. And here in chapter 4, he's exhorting this new generation, remember God, be faithful to the covenant, obey God. This is like the ultimate, you know, halftime speech. You know, he, he is just there. He's getting them ready. And, and look at what he says. Deuteronomy 4, verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Here it is. Now look down at verse 6. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Verse 7, savor these words. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? You see, as Moses is preparing the people to enter the land, he draws their attention to this particular attribute of God. He is a God who is near whenever we call upon Him. So from the beginning, Israel, God's people, was, they were meant to think about God in these terms. What is God like? Well, one thing I know He's like, He's near. He's near to his people. And that trait has particular application to prayer. He's near whenever we call on him. Do you see that? And that idea becomes part of the, really, the part of the heritage of Israel. It's recorded in their constitution right here, and it's stamped on their soul. It's, it's embedded in their constitutional memory, and, and then it begins to fill their prayers. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 145, verse 18, you ever see this? The Lord is near to all who call upon Him. To all who call upon Him in truth. Do you hear that? It's the same as Deuteronomy 4. He's near to all who call. In Psalm 34, 18, we read, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. 
Those who bring broken hearts to Him, He's near. And in Psalm 73, 28, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. You see how this just starts working out in the life of the people of God. And then we hear, uh, we hear it again. We hear Isaiah, the great prophet, say in Isaiah 30, verses 18 and 19, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore He waits on high to have compassion on you. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When He hears it, He will answer you. Isn't that a lovely picture? It's like God is standing at the cusp of heaven saying, come on, talk to me, ask me, pray. I'm just here waiting to be good to you, waiting to shower you with mercy and with grace. Come on, pray to me. I'm near. And then as salvation history unfolded, this near God drew even nearer. In John 1.14 we read, And the Word, the eternal Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the writer of Hebrews can say to us in Hebrews 10.22, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. When you think about God, is one thing you think about Him, is one thing that comes to mind, He's near are you wrestling with a major decision in your life right now? He's near. Are you tempted to, to, to despair because of unfulfilled desires? I, I don't know. Maybe you're growing older as a single with a heart to be married. He's near. Maybe, maybe you're a couple who seeking to have a child and those attempts have been fruitless so far. He, he's near. Maybe you're concerned about a child's spiritual state before God. He's near. Maybe you're concerned about your health. A chronic disease with no end in sight. The deteriorating condition, even mentally, of, of an older parent. What are we going to do? <laughs> He's near. It isn't is amazing on... on any given day, maybe every for you, maybe every single day, in a matter of seconds, you can just play out worst case scenario, vivid detail, living color, Dolby sound in the theater of your mind. This morning, we have an authoritative divine interruption to those scenarios. An interruption to our hard, thought, hard thoughts about God. All of us are going to be tempted with anxiety, my friends. These temptations can be persistent. Sometimes they can be tormenting. When, when it seems those looming concerns are just suffocating you, nothing will comfort you like the nearness of God. And here's God's promise, verse 7. In everything, make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word guard there is, it paints a picture. It's a military term. It means to set up a garrison about, a, a military post. This would come alive to the Philippians who, who, whose city was protected by a Roman garrison. And so the, the Roman army was an ever-present reality in their lives. And so Paul, Paul invites us here, God is near. Draw near. Make your requests known. Make them consistently known. Pour out your hearts, Cornerstone Church, to God. And the peace of God, supernatural, mind-calming, soul-stilling peace, will station itself around your heart and your mind like a military detachment of special ops soldiers armed to the teeth. We have an incalculable treasure in the gospel, do we not? But that glorious salvation we've received is not meant to be a distant memory. It's meant to percolate down into our soul, taking deep root. When it does, it's going to produce joy. It's going to produce gentleness. And it's going to produce peace knowing God is near. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865 865- Six nine four four three five six. We'd love to have you join us in celebrating God's grace and pursuing God's purpose.